right, we are back. At the top of the program, I mentioned we were hoping to speak with someone who's had, let's say, a more unusual adventure than most of us during these unusual times. I'm pleased to say we have now a phone connection with him from an undisclosed location somewhere in the state of Florida. Returning to the program, I'm glad to be able to say welcome back, Dr. Sean Kellum. Thanks, Doug. Now, I didn't tell people what, what your story your story is. I didn't clue them in, but I guess we should do that now. You found yourself down in the Caribbean when all of these uh, sheltering-in-place uh, mandates came down. And therefore, while the rest of us were complaining about being stuck at home, you and your lovely wife were stuck on the island of Grenada. That is indeed correct. We went down to take a look at a boat and have a little bit of a vacation. And while we were there, the whole world went insane. <laughs> and things got very odd very quickly. Island of Grenadas, if it's known at all, the people is, is for that little truncated invasion that the Reagan administration pulled off back in the 80s. I guess that uh, all things considered, it's, it's a nice place to hang out, at least for a while. Oh, it's an absolutely beautiful place. It has a very literate uh, population, you know, generally nice people. It's uh, very small. There's only 110,000 people on the entire island. It's very mountainous, so the roads tend to be sort of like being on the wild mouse at uh, Pick Your Amusement <laughs> Park. Well, a lot of people are talking about how the wealthy are fleeing to, to exotic locations. I think that uh, David Geffen was roundly hooted when he was talking about, you know, uh, withering the storm on his yacht down somewhere near you, somewhere near, somewhere near Grenada, and people thought that was pretty ridiculous. But a lot of folks, I think, would have a, a fantasy about riding this thing out in a tropical paradise. But uh, uh, I, guess, I guess you conclude then that that's maybe not all it would cracked up to be? Well, if you happen to know in advance, <laughs> you know, like several months in advance, that there was going to be a pandemic and that uh, everything would be closed, uh, then sure, you could have a grand old time. But you would have to have prepared your house with three or four months' worth of food and... Of course, uh, water, drink, and so on. That uh, is not how it all went down. When you're sort of going along, and one moment you're having a you know, lovely vacation, and the next moment uh, all the restaurants are closed, all the major grocery stores are closed, and the only place that you can buy food is in a mom-and-pop store, and the mom-and-pop stores are only open from 8 o'clock until noon, and they're only admitting one person at a time. So wow. the line in the mom and pop stores was literally down the street. So you'd see 40 or 50 people lined up six feet apart, you know, trying to buy groceries. So were you, were you able to get, get enough food to keep you going? Uh, we actually got pretty lucky in that we went into a store just before they put the quarantine in and got a fair whack of food, not, you know, not hoarder level food. And then we were able to buy fruit from uh, the farmers who had little stands at the side of the road. Okay. So even that, you had to line up within six feet apart. Now, interestingly enough, the, the people in Grenada, you know, when they were informed of this by their government, uh, everybody just cooperated completely. Everyone that possibly could wore a mask, and if you couldn't get a real mask, they all made one and 
the uh, even the even the smallest of uh, vegetable and fruit sellers uh, at the side of the road all had you know buckets of hand sanitizer and they were huh. very carefully washing their hands between each person. It was it was quite impressive. You know, it's completely different than what we see here. Sounds like they were doing better there than we are here. Oh, they were doing immensely better. Wow. People really were sheltering in place. And as a result of that, when we were there, they had uh, eight cases that were brought in by um, a foreigner who uh, then escaped. And uh, since then, which is more than a month, they've only added to that to a total of 13 cases uh, for the entire island in that entire period of time. Well, I guess there's some pluses to being on an island in, in times like these. Well, there's, there's, you know, the, the plus is that you can seal it off. Um, the downside is if you seal it off, then nobody leaves either, which is <laughs> kind of awkward. Let's talk about that part. You were in tropical paradise, and all of a sudden, going home was not, was not so easy to do. And I gather you had to make a choice between... Uh, take a flight or just wait an indeterminate time? That's exactly right. We, we, uh, we rented a house, you know, beautiful place uh, right on the ocean, you know, fantastic view, the whole nine yards, and uh, paid for it all in advance, thinking that you know, we just sort of sit there for a while. And uh, we've been there for five days, and the embassy contacted us and said that they were chartering a plane, and if you didn't get on that plane, which you also had to pay for, then uh, you had to be prepared to be in Grenada for an indefinite period of time, and they were talking in terms of three months or more. Ow, 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 wow. So, needless to say, you made the flight. Uh, We did make the flight. That was almost a Keystone Cops kind of scenario. The embassy apparently had uh, promised the charter company there'd be a huge number of Americans wanting to come back, except that most of the Americans down there had had boats and they couldn't make arrangements to get the boats pulled out of the water. So they had a choice between leaving a very expensive plastic toy uh, sitting in the water completely unattended and flying back or sitting on their very expensive plastic toy and hoping things would uh, uh, mitigate to the point that they could at least get them hauled out and put on the land before returning to the United States. So the, the flight was uh, dramatically undersubscribed, and the embassy had originally managed to schedule two of them. So the charter company recognizing a certain amount of loss, decided that they would just make one flight. So they delayed the first flight, which is one we were on, and then informed the people who were supposed to be on the afternoon flight that they had to appear at the airport in the next hour and a half or they'd be left in Grenada. <laughs> so the people who had uh, planned on being catching the afternoon flight and were doing things like you know, one couple we talked to who were they had been moving a, a boat, and so you know, the only way they'd been able to make it to the airport is if they swam. <laughs> they obviously didn't make the flight, so they're indefinitely in Grenada. Wow. 
Well, what was it like coming back? I presume that with all of this going on and people watching the airports, they must have been looking for people with fevers and all of that. Were you, were you screened? Oh, we were screened. This is where the Keystone Cops uh, <laughs> situation comes into it. We flew into San Juan, Puerto Rico. We got off the plane, and they immediately packed us. You know, in the plane, everyone is separated by, you know, a couple seats, you know, a huge plane, and uh-huh. not very many people on it. So rather than get into the terminal directly, like through a, an airway, they uh, had buses come out to pick us up uh, on the tarmac. So they pack us into bus- to these buses where you were had your nose in the person beside his ear and uh, proceeded to keep us there for about half an hour, maybe three quarters of an hour, while the flight crew sort of meandered around outside and exchanged pleasantries with everybody. And uh, so when the flight crew finally decided that they'd done enough and they got on the bus, then, then they took us to the airport. Once we're inside the airport, they amassed us in a large room, again, cheek to jowl, with every other passenger coming into the airport at that time. So you're literally bumping into people next to you. So you have to, you know, you clear customs. The customs people are all wearing masks, but, uh, and, you know, they're separated, but everybody in the, in the room is practically on top of each other. Then they take you out and put you in another room with even more people and, <laughs> One by one, take you forward to take your temperature and, and answer a, a series of questions. That, that was by the health department. So if there had been anybody in that group that had, had had the virus, then that entire group would certainly have got it. You couldn't have asked for a situation that would spread it better than that one. Wow. Well, uh, I presume that once you cleared whatever that was screening in, in Puerto Rico, they probably did they, did they look at you again when you came into Florida? No, once you're in Puerto Rico, uh, the, we came in on a Southwest flight that I think was about 240 passenger plane with 17 people on board. Wow. We arrived in Orlando and it was pretty much completely empty. You, if you'd fired a cannon down the <laughs> main concourse in Orlando, you probably would have hit one or two people, but it would have had to been a shrapnel shell to uh, actually do any damage. Wow. Well, here in California, we're looking at other states. They've been very aggressive about sheltering in place here. As we speak today, there's a lot of talk about various states, various jurisdictions. It's chaos in terms of who's going to go back to quote-unquote normal on whatever schedule. Um, I, I gather that Florida is, sort of, is, is among those states leading the pack and going back to so-called normality. Uh, yeah, Florida during the entire crisis declared uh, church service to be an essential service. <laughs> so they were exempt from the congregating rule. Mm. So those who were so inclined could go to church and sing praises and be right beside the everyone else in the congregation. But there was some decrease in the number of people on the roads and in the in the stores, but it seems almost everything is open. The you know Home Depot, Lowe's are open. All the grocery stores are open. Well, that's the same as it's, here. But 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 people here now are. If you go into one as of a few days ago, everyone's everyone's masked up. I went to Lowe's today. The parking lot was completely full, and I was one of maybe four or five people in the entire 
store who was wearing a mask. Uh-huh. And, you know, I spent my career wearing a mask, so it wasn't all that onerous for me. But I also know that the mask is not going to protect you. It's to protect other people from you. So mm-hmm. the vast majority of the people in Lowe's were not particularly concerned, it would seem. Obviously, no one's getting the stink eye by walking around unmasked, since most everybody's unmasked. Uh, that's certainly true. And uh, the good news is that the beaches will all be open this weekend. So if you want to fly to Florida, you can go to the beach. Well, I think at this point we should designate you as our red state forward progress in getting back to normal uh, correspondent because, uh, you know, I'm sure you're going to be ahead of the curve from California. We'd sure like to know how it's going. So why don't you come back (laughs) in a couple weeks and give us an update? All right. I'm happy to do so, Doug. Just let me know. Anything else you care to add for uh, for the benefit of the public? Uh. California apparently has moved into the number three spot in terms of uh, death per state, So, uh, but Florida's catching up fast, uh, so there's a good chance that we'll, we'll make it. All right. Well, when you come back next time, we'll also talk more about, I think, some of the, the medicine or some of the, uh, some of, yeah, I guess you'd say medicine that's surrounding all of this, this epidemic because there's a lot of information out there and a lot of it's not good. Maybe we can improve on that. <laughs> uh, I, I would say that the... A lot of it is not good is uh, a very major understatement. <laughs> well, we agree. Sean Kellum, thanks for giving us an, your story. Uh, Coming back soon. Talk to you later, Doug. All right. All right, we should talk about some miscellaneous things out there. Uh, I've got a couple of great articles here from the both uh, The Economist and from The New Yorker about some of the science related to how we can uh, combat coronavirus, but I think we'll save that for next week. All right, for the remainder of the show, we're going to go easy on, on uh, the great cockwomble, a.k.a. Donald J. Trump. Not because, you know, he deserves it, but because we're just tired of bagging on him. Let's, in fact, take a look at some of the other poor leadership around the world <laughs> by way of comparison. Under the week's World at a Glance, under the dateline Managua, Nicaragua, and the headline Where's Ortega?, The magazine notes that Nicaraguan's authoritarian president, Daniel Ortega, hasn't been seen in public for more than a month, and his Sandinista government is doing nothing to stop the spread of the coronavirus. His wife, Vice President, his wife, Vice President Rosario Murillo, says Nicaraguans have nothing to fear from COVID-19 because only nine cases have been confirmed in the country, all of them contracted abroad. We don't have community transmission, thanks be to God infinitely, she said. Beaches and businesses remain open, and officials have even encouraged people to turn out for village Easter parades and pro-government rallies. Public health experts, though, say Nicaragua's case count is so low only because it is not testing people for the virus, which admittedly is one way to keep your total down. I just have to look at at this mismanagement by the Sandinista government down in Managua and just have my head spin a little bit, uh, thinking back over the decades at how they were viewed as heroes of the left wing for wanting to help the Nicaraguan people, not like the oppressive regimes of the Somozas that came before them and all of the right wing funded Contra rebels, which were a bunch of thugs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What a mess. I, you know, you just would have hoped better for the poor people of Nicaragua, which I would add is a very lovely country. 
I just tend to believe they probably have some COVID-19 going on down there. And then from Dateline Garmisch Partenkirchen, Germany, we have the news on King Maha Vajiralongkorn of Thailand. He is riding out the pandemic with his 20 concubines in the Grand Hotel in Sonbichil, a posh Bavarian resort with a view of the Alps that he has rented for his entourage. But it should be noted that last week, the 67-year-old king flouted Germany's stay-at-home order by making the 12,000-mile round trip to Bangkok to celebrate Chakra Day, a festival that commemorates the establishment of his royal dynasty. Reportedly, his subjects are not pleased with the king vacationing while they battle a virus that has so far infected more than 2,600 Thais and killed at least 43. A Thai language hashtag that translates to hashtag why do we need a king was used some 1.2 million times in a single day, even though criticism of the monarch is punishable by 15 years in prison in Thailand. It's too bad. The last king they had was well-respected and widely regarded as not a jerk. I should note at this point that Ms. McMillan is pointing out that if he was king and had the option of outlasting the uh, pandemic in the Bavarian Alps with 20 concubines, he'd probably take that option. All right, in the past few weeks, I've had more than one conversation with people on the subject of fever. We mentioned on this show a few weeks back of Some doctor was on a radio program being asked about fever, and, well, she gave the usual answers that that we doctors give when asked those questions. Uh, This was revisited in an article in New Scientist in their April 11th issue by Linda Geddes, titled The Fever Paradox. The subheadline was, Fever can be deadly, but in moderation it could have some surprising upsides. Let's take a few minutes to talk about this. Oh, and I apologize in advance for the fact that the temperatures in this article are given in Celsius, which is vastly inferior to Fahrenheit. The article starts out noting that as news about coronavirus spread around the world, paracetamol soon began to disappear from shop shelves as people stocked up at home. I do have to explain at this point that the British and other nations refer to acetaminophen as paracetamol, better known to you and me under the brand name of Tylenol. I have a very brief and slightly humorous story related to that, which I must relate. I was in Thailand many years ago, back when they had a better king, and um, contracted some sort of nasty little tropical virus of some sort. I, I felt pretty bad out on Thailand's Pipi Island. Yes, yeah, a lovely place, despite the name. And for a couple of days, I just was not feeling well, feverish, just feeling horrible. Someone, I don't remember who, a fellow camper down at the beach, I think, in a tent, offered me some paracetamol, and I said, sure. And oh my God, it was miraculous how much better I felt. I asked him, what is this called, paracetamol? This stuff is great. And so I promptly looked it up and found out, yeah, it was, it was Tylenol, which normally for me doesn't work all that well. But you know, that one night on PP Island, it saved the day. Anyway, back to the article. We tend to routinely use drugs such as paracetamol or ibuprofen to try and bring down a high temperature, believing fever to be, at best, a passive and unwelcome bystander to infection and, at worst, a direct contributor to our illness. Yet, notes Linda Geddes, mounting evidence suggests that fever may, in fact, be a strategy the body uses to ramp up its defenses. Normal body temperature is generally thought of as 37, although anything between 36.5 and 37.5 is considered normal. 
However, once your temperature hits 38 degrees Celsius, you officially have got a fever. The article goes on to describe how it is that if your temperature rises too far, that can be fatal. Our cells begin to die, releasing proteins into the blood that can damage the kidneys and other organs, resulting in their failure. The exact temperature this happens probably depends on the source of the person's fever, as well as other factors, such as how hydrated they are. The number 40 degrees scares a lot of doctors, said Mark Peters at the Great Ormond Street Institute in London. Oh, for those of you used to Fahrenheit, that would be 104. Notes the piece, even so, many hospital doctors will routinely give fever-reducing drugs as soon as the patient's temperature hits 38, which would be 100.4 Fahrenheit. The piece notes that even a mild fever does come at a great metabolic cost. Raising your body temperature by just 1 degree Celsius requires a 10% increase in energy expenditure. Fever is also associated with higher pulse and breathing rate, puts additional strains on the heart and lungs, and just plain makes you feel bad. But as that doctor pointed out on the radio and we pointed out on this show, we do this for a reason, even if medical science imperfectly understands it. In fact, to that point, notes the article, fever-like responses are observed in many organisms, suggesting fever's evolutionary origins may stretch back hundreds of millions of years. Even some plants have been shown to increase their leaf temperatures in response to fungal infections, while cold-blooded creatures will deliberately raise their body temperatures if they have an infection by sitting on a hot rock. For instance, in the case of the desert iguana, not being allowed to do so was seen to cause a 75% reduction in survival rates. That suggests fever might not be all bad. Things that have a very high metabolic cost would not be preserved throughout evolutionary history unless they came with clear survival advantage. The idea that fever might actually have medical benefits goes way back. Hippocrates claimed that those who cannot be cured by medicine or surgery can be cured by heat, and those who cannot be cured by heat are to be considered incurable. Oh, no, come on. What happened to your oath? In 1927, the Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded to the Austrian physician Julius Wagner Jareg for his discovery that triggering a high and persistent fever by inoculating people with malaria could treat their syphilis. The malaria was later treated with quinine, which was a little more reliable. Nevertheless, the piece notes that fever can feel unpleasant. Many of us feel glad when our temperature drops. From all these perspectives, it makes sense to want to bring temperatures down as quickly as possible. And that's certainly how the medical profession views things. Correcting fever has become a routine part of intensive care practice almost to a point where it's not discussed. But there are hints we might be missing something. Take the common viral infection of chickenpox. In a study of 70 ch- children who weren't given drugs known to reduce fever, they recovered faster. Likewise, a study of 56 people infected with one of the viruses that causes the common cold found that those who took certain fever-reducing drugs remained infectious for longer. Anyway, the article does not come to any firm conclusions, as is so often the case in medicine. But the punchline of this is, if your fever is mild and you aren't in great discomfort, you might want to remember what's going on inside of you. Permitting a fever in the viral condition is likely to allow your immune system to do its job better, as it has been designed by millions of years of evolution. And there you have it. But I have to laugh that even after putting out this wishy-washy conclusion to the article, they, they had to put a disclaimer on there. This article is not medical advice. Very high temperatures can be dangerous. If you're feeling unwell, seek the advice of your doctor, especially if your fever is accompanied by other symptoms. Yeah, the art of medicine is an art, and it's, it's frustrating sometimes. I apologize. 
All right, Mr. Man tells me I got about four minutes left. I have a choice between a New Yorker article on Dr. Anthony Fauci, which is quite a good article, or an excerpt from an amusing book titled Who Gave Pinta to the Santa Maria? And I'm going to go with the book. I'll hold Dr. Fauci in reserve. You know, I bought this book many years ago thinking of a joke in the class notes by my, my good friend, Dr. Joel Holtz. When Joel was writing up the notes to one of the infectious disease lectures and the the speaker mentioned that it was believed that syphilis had come to the Western world via the voyages of Columbus, Joel wrote in the notes, I thought he had the pinta. And the reason his joke in the notes was funny, as is the title of this book, is that pinta was not just the name of one of Columbus's ships, it is the name of a disease related to syphilis. I know it may not sound like much on a radio show, but it was slaying him in the aisles back in med school days. In the final chapter in the book titled The 21st Century, which would not arrive at the time this book was written, it was said that every biomedical scientist knows that the great beneficial discoveries come both from logical, rational, dogged investigation and from serendipitous, empirical, seemingly remote, unconnected findings. More often than not, logic follows serendipity. We now know the pivotal cell in immunity is the lymphocyte. Lymphocytes do almost everything. From them come antibodies, as well as the chemical signals to turn the off-and-on switches of other cells of the immune system. The subpopulation of lymphocytes, given the right signal, can develop into cancer killer cells. And yet, 50 years ago, the book was written in 1997, the lymphocyte was a mysterious nobody in the blood. My old college hematology book suggested that it might transport fat. In 1957, a poultry science graduate student was doing his dissertation research on the the bursa of Fabricius, which is a bit of lymphoid tissue in the chicken's rectum that few others had studied and whose function was unknown. Through a series of almost accidental experimental events, it was discovered that a chicken who had its bursa surgically removed couldn't make antibodies. This was the pivotal discovery from which modern immunology and its practical applications immune therapies by monoclonal antibodies and cytokines or lymphokines, organ transplantation, and the promised great immune therapies devolve. And there's more from this book that I would like to quote from, but we're out of time. We certainly need to hope for more serendipity followed by logic in uh, in the science that's going to go into um, how we're going to fight COVID-19. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how things need to change in the future in medicine. We need to not take our eye off the ball when it comes to more RNA-related viruses. Uh, COVID-19 is not going to be the last, that's for sure. The Economist notes that almost all the pharmaceutical industry's vaccine manufacturing know-how is concentrated in just four companies, GSK, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, and Sanofi. The Economist notes these four are generally wary of developing vaccines for pandemics, not least because developing vaccines for diseases that then vanish is less profitable. They quote Lori Garrett, author of The Coming Plague, as saying, look what happened to the excellent Zika vaccine as soon as it turned out America wasn't going to get slammed. We note happily that all four are contributing to COVID-19 vaccine efforts in an unusual collaboration. GSK is providing a particularly promising adjuvant to Sanofi's protein subunit program. An adjuvant is a chemical cofactor that can enhance a vaccine's effect. And by the way, it does so for reasons that are not always well understood, which unfortunately sums up a great deal about immunology to this day. We're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. 
since we're talking about fever a moment ago, I think Mr. Millen has just the perfect bit of outro music. We'll see you next week. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. When you put your arms around me, I get a fever that's so hard to bear. You give me fever. When you kiss me, fever, when you hold me tight. Fever in the morning, a fever all through the night. Sun lights up the daytime, moon lights up the night. I light up when you call my name, and you know I'm gonna treat you right. You give me fever.